Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name's Will Holden, and I am joined today by Andy Melbourne. How are you doing, buddy? Hi, well, yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, mate. And Mark Wall, how's it going? Yeah, good. Cheers, mate. How are you? Good, man. This week, these are your picks, no? Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, do you want me to let's, introduce let's have the, the rundown? Film? Yeah. Okay, so I picked Five Easy Pieces, which is a film from 1970 by Bob Raffleson, starring a relatively young Jack Nicholson. I'd seen it about 10, 12 years ago, had very limited memories of it and just thought, give it another go, see what you guys think of it. Do you remember what you thought about it on first viewing? Because this this is my first viewing, so I'm interested to see. Yeah, I liked it first viewing, but I couldn't really remember any specifics at all, which is kind of why I wanted to do it. I know it's kind of different to the usual fare. It's not exactly a Hollywood blockbuster or anything like that. I move around a lot. Not because I'm looking for anything, really, but because I'm getting away from things that get bad if I stay. The person has no respect for himself, no love of himself, his work, his friends, his family, or something. How can he expect love in return? Why should he ask for it? I guess so, to, to fill in for anybody listening, it's sort of the story about, well, what I figured it is anyway, it's a story about a man trapped between the two worlds of, like he comes from a wealthy family of musicians, but has at some point discarded them and by his own admission just sort of moved around and sort of run away from his problems and, and lived a fairly poor life. And he seems to resent the people around him because he feels superior to them. But he also hates his family for being snobs. And it just feels like a man, he doesn't fit into either of the spheres that are presented to him. And it just drives him bonkers. I think he's, I think it's a really good portrayal of depression. Like he just, he lashes out at everybody around him and just has no time to do anything. Just remarks all the time. He just feels nothing inside. Yeah, I'd say that was, uh, that was spot on. Yeah. So that was my that was my big takeaway from the film was kind of the overall theme of it. And how did that then relate to how you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it, as the case may be? Well, that's where I, the rating of this film is going to be really hard. I still haven't decided what number this is going to go on. I think Jack Nicholson's performance is incredible. I think it's one of his best performances. He starts off all over the place, very high strung, quite kind of ditzy, maybe. Mm-hmm but then portrays sadness, grief, anger, 
just goes through this absolute kaleidoscope of emotions and he's just excellent in it. I've always liked Jack Nicholson as an actor, but I felt that this performance is sort of above and beyond the norm for me. Yeah, uh, 100% agreed. I think it might be my favourite performance of his that I've seen. What did you think, Andy? Yeah, I'm not really on the fence at all. Like, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's just a it's a character film, isn't it? I mean, there is pretty much no plot. He kind of goes back to see his family. Like you say, it's a split between the two worlds, but the plot is irrelevant and pretty much nothingy anyway. I think all the characters are really good in it. Obviously, it's built around Bobby, uh, Jack Nicholson, but I think the rest of the characters are like so well written as well. I think the best thing about Bobby as well is that like there's nothing inherently sort of likable about him. Like he he sort of treats people pretty badly. His girlfriend he's horrible to most of the time. Like he goes back to see his family and leaves her in a grotty like hostel for Motel, a week. Or, yeah. yeah. But I still had sort of empathy for him. Like I kind of I think because he's I never I didn't really think about it in terms of depression, to be honest, but you're right. But he's just so unhappy in his life that I found it hard to not empathize with him, even when he's being just awful. Yeah, a pretty horrible character. It's superbly well written and acted. Like the plot is irrelevant in that case. It absolutely does what it's intending to do, I think. And you see, though, that's the kind of in there lies my criticism, I think, is that when he goes back to his parents' house, so perhaps the last kind of 45 minutes, kind of the second half of the film, really, mm-hmm. I think that's when it really kicks into gear for me. And I think a lot of it leading up to that was it just felt meandering. And despite Nicholson's like excellent performance and uh, Karen Black, who I might just touch on some of the names here because they're excellent, Rayette DePesto buzzing name um like she's excellent in it as well but didn't quite capture my interest in the same way in that first half when it's just just sort of showing you who bobby is and after a bit i thought right i get it he's a knob and then when it when you introduce the rest of his family and all of those characters and that dynamic it really like kicked off for me and i think on balance that's enough that part of the film it left me on a good note i'm gonna fall positively on this film I do think like the first maybe half hour or so just sort of circles the drain for a bit for me. I think the second half of the film is much stronger than the first half, but I don't know that. I mean, it's essential. Like you see Bobby in two worlds. It's kind of essential. doesn't make sense as a film without the first half. What, what was your take then, Mark, after having seen it before? It was, uh, yeah, I didn't remember it being quite so bleak, to be honest, particularly the ending. Pretty hardcore, isn't it? It's just... You really want him to do something else. That's the thing. You you nailed it, really, when you said fundamentally quite an unlikable character. And yet somehow, due to the good writing and his performance, you still really want him to succeed. Like when he gets with the, um, couldn't quite work out who she was, but like the musician woman. Yeah, so the guy... Wasn't she like a a protege of, uh, is that right? Yeah, of his father. Yeah. Carl in the neck brace is his brother. Yeah, there you go. So even though it's his brother's girl, I kind of wanted them to work out. You're just constantly pulling for him the whole time. And it's really strange because why? Because he is a bit of a dick mm-hmm. all the time. But I think fundamentally, one of the reasons it works as well is just because a lot of the stuff is very relatable, I yeah. think. Oh, yeah. totally. So, rebelling against your kind of upbringing. You don't want to be what your parents want to be. You know, you want to well, escape. In this case, finding that the rebellion is like equally as 
disappointing. Yeah, exactly. And even like kind of the thing where, yeah, he's with Karen Black and he is mostly a dick to her, but you actually kind of still get the sense that he does care for her as well. It's kind of an odd juxtaposition. That scene yeah. with, is she like a mystic? The scene where they're all sitting around with his dad's friends. I think she might be a mystic and she's putting oh, yeah. down yeah. my head. And uh, Bobby jumps in to defend her. And I can't remember what the line he is that he says, but like, you're not worthy to like criticize yeah, her. Sort of who are you of. to point fingers? Yeah. yeah. And you can see that there's genuine like feeling there, despite the fact that he doesn't really show it to her at any point in the film. I don't know. Everyone in the film is so, despite all of Bobby's flaws, everyone in the film is, all of his friends and his family are so supportive of him. People seem to like him and want him to do well, despite what he does. It's sad. It's sort of just sad seeing somebody completely struggle to get through life, despite the huge like support package that he has there. I think that goes with what you were saying earlier, Mark, about like wanting him to succeed. I think it may be more of a sense of wanting him to do better. He's got all of the pieces to a good life and he just, sure. just can't put it together. My takeaway from when he defends Rayette from the crazy lady, I kind of got the impression is rather than defending Rayette because of how he treated her and the rest, is more like him defending his choice to yep, be away from the family. So even then, I think it's a selfish act. Like kind of defending him. the world, the That's world it, that he's sort of living family. in at the minute. Yeah, the world I fled to is not is not awful and not this thing that you, you're describing it as. Yeah, so even, just even then, I, I don't think he's on Rayette's side because she's incredibly sweet as well. And like, she's probably the most supportive of all, almost to the point of naivety. Yeah. That probably be better off without him and nearly gets away from him a couple of times. But like you say, he's got some sort of charm that people are drawn to, not least of all Rayette. Yeah, I think there's loads of stuff which kind of is left to interpretation as well. Like the scene with his dad, which is actually quite an emotional one, really well acted again. And again, that could kind of just be read as maybe one of the reasons he left his family in the first place is because they found him a disappointment or like they were never supportive of him. They just wanted him to be a certain thing. And again, a lot of this stuff is kind of relatable. I find a lot of it relatable anyway. Yeah, but hugely, which yeah. would be Which would be kind of worrying, but then you can sort of take comfort in the fact, right, I've never gone to those levels he goes to in being no, I think, sort of a dick about it i think they're just genuine human emotions i think everybody has felt like that they felt like an outsider in their own life mm-hmm. um for him he's got sort of two lives almost and feels like an outsider in both of them and that that scene with his father i think it's the big climactic scene of the film really i know there's more of the film to go afterwards but but yeah that's a big crescendo moment isn't it yeah it's not fair to say it like left me cold, but it wasn't my favourite scene of the film. It's the only time that he talks to his father and it's the only time where he probably touches on kind of being honest, I think. Yeah. Like I sort of yeah. interpreted that being his honest opinion, like saying they sort of it... let down his father. It didn't quite yeah, I... click for me. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I really like that. And, and like you say, Jack Nicholson, I think, performs that heartbreakingly. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine how hard that must be to act against an old man who just sits and stares <laughs> yeah. at Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to touch on as well as a couple of interesting movie making moments. One that I, I picked out that uh, I really liked was when the first time we meet Bobby's sister, is it Partita? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, Partita. And she is obviously a professional pianist being recorded. And as she plays, she's like humming along and uh, it ruins the take. So I think you get this sense that she's eccentric. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then when he's talking to her and he says, I can only stay a week and it disappoints her. And at that moment, I think what it is, is they're reversing the tape of what they've just played. But it just sounds like this atonal chaos music, just quite lightly in the background. And I thought like mm-hmm. it, it feels like it is framing her obsessiveness about him. And her, she's quite clingy to him and doesn't tell you it's his sister straight away. And we've already seen him with several women. I thought this was kind of a, just another squeeze that he was <laughs> he was going for. And the way that she responded to him, that didn't alter my opinion until they mentioned that they're siblings. Just that particular bit with the kind of reversed recorded music added to that like atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, they do a lot of that, don't they? I don't think there's any actual score at all. Neither is there really a soundtrack. It's all, is it called diegetic? There is quite a lot of, isn't it, like a mostly like Dolly Parton soundtrack? Yeah, I think that yeah, means but like it, it's not scored, like it's just... Oh, sure. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's yeah, always it's like just... played on the radio, like, yeah. you know, someone's listening to it in the film kind of thing. I'm with you, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's really effective, like it's so naturalistic all round. And there's nothing flashy in the direction or anything like that, really. There's some nice shots or whatever, but very simply put together. I mean, Andy said it at the start, and he's completely right. There's there's no real story to speak of, really. It's just a complete character study, which leaves it very open-ended at the end. But it's super effective, I think. It's really abrupt, the ending. It just, he literally walks off into the sunset. Well, he doesn't literally, because he gets in a lorry, but... Is literally driven off into the sunset. Yeah, I think for ending quite abruptly, I don't know what other ending would have felt satisfying. There's no character arc where you're expecting to make a good decision at the end. He just sort of, he does what he told his dad he would do and he just runs away from the situation and moves on to the next chapter of his life, which you sort of think will be better. I I think it's a really good ending, even though it kind of comes out of nowhere. No, I I agree. Like I think, I think it's a good ending. I think it's disappointing, not from a film point of view, but from a character point of view. Because I say, you're willing him to do better. And you think driving away from his family with Rayette, she's pregnant, right? We get that? Because it's not explicitly said, but there's a bit where um, him and his mate at the oil rig. Oh, I thought that was just him reacting to the idea of having a family. That he's not ready for a family. I like thought that's why he, he was so mad that she is pregnant and that Rayette had told, is it Stoney? That's Elton's girlfriend, isn't it? Yeah. That that was what I got from that. I might be, it might have misinterpreted that because it isn't, definitely isn't yeah, explicit no, if she is. But I thought that was him basically saying like, oh, she's told Stoney that she's pregnant and that's why Bobby gets kind of so mad about it because you're right, he's not, he doesn't want to be, it's just another tie that he doesn't want to have. It, it wasn't how I read it, but I kind of read it as he just wasn't ready for a family and the whole idea of it, Scared just him and he, yeah, and he just lashed out about it. I, I'm kind of hoping that she wasn't pregnant because that would just turn it even further. I think. Yeah, it's even darker, isn't it? Then? Yeah, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't have that much more to say on it. Really, I think um, you, you, you were right as well. I mean, I don't really think it's a film about depression. I think it's about a guy with no direction or meaning in his life who, yeah, he, he constantly just seems to seek solace in a booze sex anything to get a temporary high and it never lasts there's that scene where like the two girls are sort of chatting him up confusing him with you know a guy on tv yeah and he's proper loving it i don't know it just feels like he's someone who needs to have yeah sort of affirmation yeah exactly despite the fact that he gets it from rayette 
and his family. It's not, it's not enough, though, is it? I, just, I think the idea of everyone supportive to him, the way he reacts looks like he feels like an outsider, despite the fact that people are welcoming him in all the time. There's a couple of scenes I really, really liked. The scene in the diner uh, when they yeah. pick up those two, like, the hitchhikers, the like, car breaks down. I think like their reaction to him trying to wangle his way around the uh, the like rules of the diner where they're refusing to serve him what he wants. Yeah. It's just like it shows that he's a smart guy and he's they're just sort of impressed by the way that he tries to talk him around. Yeah. 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 I thought that was a really good little scene. The scene as well where he's I've forgotten her name, the uh the like protege. Catherine, Catherine Van Oost. Yeah, Catherine. The scene with Catherine where she makes him like, play the piano for her. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he says, like, I faked a little Chopin and you faked a big reaction. Yeah, awesome and, line. And that's just, yeah, what a line that is. It's just my heart broke it... a little bit at that moment. <laughs> like, I, yeah. think, I think she was genuine. Yeah. He couldn't, just couldn't accept the praise that he was being given. Never I thought think... that he was good enough and so just wouldn't listen to it. Yeah, yeah. I really like the scene when uh, they're in a traffic jam after, like, turning up to work absolutely pissed. Yeah. Tell they can't work, end up in this traffic jam, and he just jumps on the back of a truck and plays this old out of tune piano as it as it pulls off and drives into a different lane. Yeah, super surreal. <laughs> that. Yeah, it was good. That was the first moment I really started. I sort of enjoyed the opening, but at that point I was really heavily invested. So I think it's when he goes to his family that it really turns on its head for me. But talking about it as well, I did really enjoy the two hitchhikers. It's a weird kind of sidestep for the film. I'm not really sure what else it's supposed to show us. Maybe just the filmmaker's idea of like hippie America. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I was I was the same. That's that's the one scene that struck me as a bit. It's the only time the focus is taken away from him, and that she's just talking about filth, filth. a lot. Yeah, and, uh, it's kind of entertaining, but I don't know to what purpose. What? Yeah, I don't know what it, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Really. I don't know that if it's just bit. another little caricature of the kind of the world that he lives in. It's another example that you can use as a juxtaposition against the world that he goes into in the second half. I don't think any of it really has any massive meaning because it is just a little like character. Piece. Yeah, I mean their their get together lasts maybe longer than I'd than I'd like with the hitchhikers. Like that goes on for a kind of number of short scenes. Of them mm-hmm. like driving and talking and say being in the diner, and but I kind I kind of did enjoy particularly the diner scene there. Just going back to the ending and just the closing shot of the film as the credits roll. Yeah, as you'd say, they pull into this like gas station. He goes into the men's, and when he comes out, he ends up convincing a truck driver to take him somewhere. My immediate thought, I don't know if you guys did as well, but was Alaska because the two hitchhikers were talking about how clean Alaska was. So it was in my <laughs> head. So I was like, oh, right, it's gone to Alaska then. <laughs> but it's the final shot. It's big wide shot of the gas station and this highway. Yeah. And the truck pulls away and goes one way and you can see it disappearing at one edge of the screen. And at the other, you can see Rayette come out yeah. to the mm-hmm. car and just not find him. And you can watch these two things simultaneously. And she I just slowly like, wanders over to the toilet, doesn't she? The bathroom. She, knows, she already knows she's not going to find him there. And then the credits just start to roll slowly over this continuing scene as this truck just gets smaller and smaller. I just thought what an incredible like closing shot it was. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fantastic ending. And she signed a death warrant, I suppose, because I think the last thing pretty much that she says to him is, you know I'm the only person who can look after you. And obviously he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that idea at all. Yeah. At the ending, I remember thinking, 
at least Ray Eight gets a car in his wallet out of the deal because uh, <laughs> cause it's the least she deserves. For, uh, There's every chance Ray Eight will be better off without him long term anyway. So yeah, maybe that maybe yeah, she's sure. the one who gets the positive ending, even through the grimness. <laughs> Yeah, I say I can't think of any other way that you could wrap up the film any better. No, agreed, agreed. Did you have anything else, either of you? Other than I suppose, I found it interesting that the aspect of music was kind of a backseat. Do you know what I mean? Like the fact he's a musician Mm -hmm. only really related to the fact that his family were musicians and it was a way to measure his ability clearly and concisely. Being called Five Easy Pieces, reading the blurb like about him being a pianist. I thought it'd be more about music. I don't think it's a, a negative, just a, a point, really. Just a surprise that it is there just as the backdrop. Yeah. This is the first time that I've actually thought about the title. I didn't, I didn't put that together at all. Never thought about oh, what yeah, the title five, meant five at easy, all. Five easy piano pieces. I was also trying to count things through the film, but forgot. Like, I was thinking, does he sleep with five different women? Are they supposed to be the pieces? <laughs> or does he play five specific tunes? Or And uh, I forgot to count after yeah, a you, bit. I mean, you still put way more effort and thought into it than I did. <laughs> Just thought it's got to be something about this title. But yeah, I think that's uh, that's everything I've got. Okay, so let's go for ratings. Marco, as it's your film, do you want to give us your rating? Yeah, so... I am going to go for a nine, which is an exceptionally high score, but we don't do halves and I think it's better than an eight. I'm going to give it a nine as well. I was between an eight and a nine. When you're saying like 10's a perfect film. 10 perfect to you. But I think... Because my my cousin Vinny's a 10. (laughs) (laughs) There is so few faults with it. Like I say, the big climactic scene with his dad... I wasn't as emotionally invested in it as some of the other scenes. It's pretty much the only reason that I'm not giving it a 10, because I think as far as a little character piece, like it's so well written and so well performed that it is almost perfect in what it's trying to do. So yeah, nine. I am going to be the slight dissenter. I'm going to give it an eight, but I think that's higher than I was first ranging in with. I was probably looking at like a seven, maybe a six, because I was, and, and still am, to be honest. I, I think the first maybe 20 minutes, half an hour is just a, a little bit of a drag. And I've got to give it some knock for that. But when it gets into its stride, I think it's great. And I think Jack Nicholson's really great in it. I guess it's just a personal opinion thing, but I think I'll almost always enjoy plot more than Meander. But as you say, what it was going for, I think it pretty much nailed it. Just had a couple of drawbacks, but a good eight for me. Beautiful. Well, good, yeah. I'm glad you both enjoyed it. I, I never would have watched it either. I know it's supposed to be held up as a classic, but I'd literally never heard of it. I'm, I'm very glad that you picked it because I never would have watched it. I'd heard of it because I'm sure we've talked about it briefly in the past. So I'd heard of it. Yeah, for the same reasons, really. I probably wouldn't have come around to it if you hadn't selected it. So it was a good choice. Aces. All right, so shall we move on to talking about Punch Brothers? Yeah, okay. So that is... Uh, Anti-fogmatic. Marco, why did you pick this album? Uh, I picked it because I have always quite liked the Punch Brothers, but I hadn't listened to this one in particular for quite a while. 
And I thought it would make an interesting counterpart to little Tybee. Mm. And I just kind of thought it was something a bit different genre-wise. Um, I wasn't sure how familiar you two were with them. I think we've talked about it in the past and I've heard a couple of tracks, but I've certainly not listened to it this yeah. sort of intensely. Yeah, definitely the same. I've come across them before, but I, if I've listened to them, I don't remember. I recognise the name and I was expecting bluegrass. Well, yeah, <laughs> indeed, which is which is what it is, I guess. They touch on it, doesn't they? So I put the album on and quickly Googled the band just to get a bit of info. And the first thing that I read was that it's Chris Thiley's band, mm-hmm. um, who's a singer, who I love because he pops up on loads of stuff that I watch and listen to. Like he plays with Fourth Pet quite a lot. Uh, Corey Wong I've seen him with. I literally listened to a Corey Wong track two days before that he was on, and he's superb on it. He's such a good mandolin player. Yeah, so I was pretty excited immediately. And then also I saw that John Bryan had produced this album and I praised him on an earlier podcast for writing the music for Punch Drunk Love, which is a superb soundtrack. So I was super excited <laughs> having <laughs> listened to about 20 seconds of it. I was expecting to love it. For the most part, I did. I think it's a pretty cool album. Yeah, I agree. I think this album's pretty great. I think it's a bit of a bell curve for me. I think maybe the opening three tracks and the maybe last three or four tracks i think are my favorite and it has a very slight dip in the middle mm-hmm. it's it's a dip where their worst is still a really good song but i think i think they're just the beginning and the end uh the, the peaks for me yeah i think it nails what it's trying to do basically it's sort of the antithesis of the little tybee record because the criticism there i think was basically there's a lack of actual songs and i think this absolutely has them they're really for the even most the part, one, I think they're really strong. Yeah, just gonna say, even the ones that are that aren't quite as good always have just a little bit, couple of bits of interest in there. Something which is just picks up the ear. I think even like, the ones that are like the last track is pretty stripped back. I think like they're well written songs. So even when they're have, missing some of the like interest going, I don't think the last track is the best song in the world, but I think it still works better than any of the little Tybee tracks because it's better written songs. So you can strip everything away and it's still interesting enough. I agree. Like this is a, a more successful album, I think overall. We should probably say basically all string players. So it's a mandolin, banjo, acoustic guitar, double bass and violin. Mm-hmm. Um, May I admit it took me an embarrassingly long time to notice there weren't any drums. Yeah, it's mad isn't it there's Probably actually about my third listen before i realized like, oh, there isn't any on here is there there's there's such like remarkable rhythm and energy to it though i think half the time chris needs to pronounce it tiley chris thiley i would have gone chris file but i um i heard somebody i think it was Corey wong i heard introduce him and said thiley thiley okay well is it, a lot of the time it seems he's just doing mad kind of rhythmic stabs it works so well i mean it's it's crazy they they have a later album where they have drums on like three tracks and it's the only time they've done it. It's kind of Does like, it sound like kind of, it doesn't add anything really? It's it's weird. So many times I started well, once I'd realized there were no drums, like I say, a few listens in, I then started to notice like how they replicate it. So there's and a lot of songs have kind of got the double bass just hitting that bass drum mm-hmm. and then the guitarist just having a muted as the like sort of snare. You just sort of develop this this drum beat out of what they've got but i think that's the thing it's like classic bluegrass instruments and those are kind of bluegrass techniques aren't they to get rhythm into your music whereas, Chuck a washboard in yeah whereas actually like there's barely any tracks that sound remotely bluegrassy 
Like, I wouldn't say it's a bluegrass album really at all, apart from all the instrumentation. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a little bit there. Uh, Rye Whiskey, which is fucking Rye whiskey. fantastic. Rye Whiskey 100% is. Like, that's a proper foot stomper. But, yeah. but it's the only track, really, I think, apart from odd, odd little moments. None of the other tracks, I would say, are bluegrass tracks, even if they've got little bluegrass moments in them. I really like that they are not afraid of dissonance. Yeah. They go for those clashes. There's nothing better than a resolving clash. Is that it's my most satisfying musical trick? Is you just make it clash and then it just slips into a beautiful chord. And they do it tons of times in this album, and it, it gets me every time. I'm happy to just listen <laughs> to that trope forever. Me and Mark are just <laughs> nodding because I'm pretty sure we've had this conversation before. Where there is yep. nothing more important than uh, dissonance and resolve. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> but even from uh, like you are, I think probably the first track you are is probably my favorite track on the album. I think. It, Kicks off with a, a real beaut. And I and like it. it. It's not my favourite, but I re- really into that. I mean, it helps that it's first, so I've listened to it probably most. You know, you got halfway through it on a train journey, and then well, I'll just die again. <laughs> I probably listen to that track more than any other. But again, it's like there's some great vocal stuff in there, like really stacked mm. vocals that again go into like this big clash note that they hold, and it just sounds superb. Yeah, I think on a couple of songs, there's a different singer doing the main lead it's really hard to tell and i couldn't i tried to look it up and i couldn't really find out definitely a few of them singing like i don't think that's the main vocalist singing his own like harmony lines yeah so it for sure but i just mean in terms of the lead vocal i think a couple of the songs are by another member of the band possibly don't need no the second song which is mm-hmm. great as well yeah i don't think that's chris filey doing the lead singing it doesn't matter but I think they come across as a sort of super group, don't they? I'm sure they can all bell out a note. Yeah, I, I've seen them live and they are unbelievable. Sickeningly good. Yeah, just, I, just ridiculous. I was wondering how much of this album is, like I wonder how much of it is kind of overdubs and stuff and how much of it is just pretty much a live performance because it I, just, it sounds like it's got that live feel to it. And I watched yeah. the like Tiny Desk concert Mm-hmm. earlier on today and they're so ridiculously tight yeah like just I, unbelievably I, tight i think it's pretty much live there may be one or two points where they've added something else in like an extra harmony or something god knows but yeah uh you mentioned i didn't realize it was john bryan but it's so well produced as well superb isn't it yeah, yeah agreed it's ridiculous I think that again goes to why like the the lack of drums is just unnoticeable like the sound is so full but and all the instruments are clear and have their own like that's audio, audio space it sounds like and i'm sure it isn't but it sounds like there's almost nothing done to any of the instruments there's just space yeah. for them to saw through <laughs> like there doesn't sound like there's any reverb added to anything i know or, it's crazy not even a microphone just so <laughs> in Everything. my headphones there's a little band in there Everything is just crystal clear, and even in the like massive, massive different rhythms, and you can pick out every part. Like it's, yeah, fantastically produced. You don't even notice how much the bassist is doing. And then there was just one chorus in particular where he's doing this mad like walking bassline stuff, and it was it's it's that it's again the counter to to last week where on every listen you are picking up on those extra details and appreciating them. I could sit and just listen to the banjo. Some of the band yeah, yeah I mean he's phenomenal. absolutely absurd. <laughs> I also like that he plays a line 
I think it's in Welcome Home, the second to last song in the verses, which sounds exactly like a Zelda dungeon theme, <laughs> which, which, which makes me happy. But yeah, I just, I mean, we haven't even mentioned, I mean, there's, there's such variety as well. Different songs go in different directions. I fucking love Next to the Trash. Seems to have about two or three different choruses in it. It starts very kind of bluegrassy, and then it goes into a big waltz in the middle. And he's going on about, I, I, I don't know what the hell he's on about. Some, some <laughs> miniature girl under the sink. <laughs> and I, I really like the close of that album. And even that, like you say, good luck. This is the song, good luck at the end. I don't think it's the best song on the album, but I think it's a really nice closer. It's just a real like gentle sea way out of the album. What's your favourite track, Mark? I, I can't narrow it down to one. I really like Don't Need No. I really like Rye Whiskey. Love Missy. Um, I've got a standout track and neither of you have named it. <laughs> and uh, Next to the Trash and Welcome Home. Is yours Alex? <laughs> no, mine's uh, The Woman and the Bell. Oh, okay. I love that I mean, song. I think that song's ace. Like it just, it's got a chorus that lasts for two bars. <laughs> And the lyrics are different every time it comes back. And the instrumentation just gets progressively more like chaotic and dissonant. And yet somehow the song still works over the top of it. I think it's great. Love that song. Excellent. I mean, I think it's telling that uh, we have picked our favourite songs as well as trying to pick each other's. And in doing so, I've picked about seven different songs. Yeah. I think it's pretty good album. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been any of them. Yeah, it's I, it's fantastic. I will say, and I don't know whether you guys have checked out any of their later stuff as a result at all. But Not yet, but I will. I do think it's possibly my favourite of theirs that I've listened to a lot. The, the one after is quite interesting. It's quite a bit more poppy, and they do start to have stuff like reverb and a bit more added production on it, but it's still pretty cool. They're obviously a big band, I suppose, but it's just great music, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I think I could, I'll, I'll certainly try it out and see. And I don't know whether that kind of change in production will mm. alter my opinion of it. But if it stays that level of songwriting, then I feel like it probably won't be a too big an issue for me. No, fair play. Have we got anything more for the album? Um, I will just say that the violin stuff is again awesome. The uh, the violin solo in Missy in particular is incredible. Yeah. So shall we go then to the ratings for Antifogmatic by the Punch Brothers, Andy? Yeah, I'm excited to like listen to this more and listen to their other stuff. I'm going to give it eight out of ten on the proviso that same as you will, although not necessarily the same order. I wouldn't say it's the middle few tracks, but there's a couple of tracks that don't work for me quite as much as some of the others. But I also kind of figure if I listen to the album more, they'll probably grow on me more. So yeah. I'm going. So yeah, eight out of ten, <laughs> but it might get higher as I uh, as I listen to it more. Yeah, great album, superb choice. I'm going to give it a nine out of ten. Because for much the same reasons, but the lows for me in the album are still higher than most songs. <laughs> I think I think it's pretty great throughout. Like I said, I think we all favour different parts of it more than others. But yeah, it went straight into my like master playlist, the full album, and that's the biggest uh, accreditation I can possibly give. <laughs> Anyone Absolutely. can possibly give it. Really. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I will give it a nine as well. You're on a run so far, Marco. I really feel like I undershot now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I was kind of thinking, because I picked it, 
I don't want to just give the two things I've picked high scores. But then, yeah, you you two have talked me into it. I'm glad you uh, glad you liked them both. No, I think you've made some excellent excellent choices. Yeah, I love them both. Brilliant. Um, All right. So, shall we move on to your top five list, Marco? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. This was a really interesting one. So, tell us what you tell us what your list is. So, it's top five directorial debuts, um, which was just pulled from nowhere, to be honest, because you guys criticised my other pick, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is probably was... fair. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Thankfully, Wikipedia provides a list of directorial debuts, making it pretty easy to sort of go through. But there are some interesting things on there. What was really hard was whittling this down to five. And I have a sort of sprawling list of about 15 because there are some others I just want to touch on as, as interesting. Okay, so shall I go first? I've not gone first on anything tonight. So I feel like Do it's it, my, my duty. Yeah. Right, number five, I'm going to pick Bugsy Malone by Alan Parker. Nice. The child musical where they fire eggs at each mm-hmm. other. That was like a real school holiday film for me. It just seemed to always be on when the holidays were on. I'd always watch Bugsy Malone. I had no idea it was a directorial debut, but uh, it's got Jodie Foster in it, a cast of all kids. It's rad. It's a really cool film. <laughs> That's my number five. I had no idea that was his debut. I um, think, so. yeah, I feel like we'll research this better than I did. <laughs> um, I just... <laughs> I just, I mean, I thought of a few films that I thought were director debuts and I did a quick bit of Googling, but I definitely didn't go through a full list. Good pick, though. Thank you. Go on, Matt. Who's going next? Okay. Uh, all right. So I watched it for the first time in the last few days. And that was her little movie called Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. Which I'd uh, well, I've heard I'd of that, seen. I think. <laughs> I'd never watched it and it was kind of a good excuse to to give it a go really seeing as it's you know the best film of all time (laughs) (laughs) have you have either you seen it yeah yeah i enjoyed it and i think it is absolutely remarkable for when it was made and orson wells is the man and i watched like the first 10 minutes of a commentary on it as well and there's a load of stuff i didn't realize was going on in terms of the filmmaking which is remarkable having said all this ultimately i don't know if it's in my like top 100 films or anything like that I think that's sort of it. Like it is, it is remarkably made. I think it does have like a really interesting story around it. I didn't mm-hmm. actually really enjoy watching it, and and uh, I've not really thought about watching it a second time. Yeah, I thought that was good when I watched it, and that was ten years ago, and I've never <laughs> had a reason to go back and watch it again. I, I'm not you feel criticizing about your pick either because it was a good film. But how do you how do you feel about it right now, Mark? Do you think you could go back and watch it again, like in a year or like five years or tomorrow five years sounds about right yeah yeah i mean to be honest i've literally only put it in this top five because i just watched it for the top five and four <laughs> like, well yeah spot on, i need to put something in there I mean, um, once every five years is not a descent there are plenty of films i love no, and come around once every five years or so definitely it does it does have a load of awesome stuff in it to be fair Half of it seems to have been in White Stripe songs, which um, was odd. Um, <laughs> Must be a big fan. Yeah, apparently so. Uh, what, what's your five, Andy? Uh, my five is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, Shane Black's first film. Don't know if either of you have seen it. I might have watched indeed. it with you, Will. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, we watched it together. Yeah. Um, I forget now the kind of finer points of the plot, but I remember it just being really manic, like really fun. It's quite quick-witted and yeah like snap, snappy dialogue it's kind of a mystery film noir kind of style 
Robert Downey Jr. pretending he's a PI, isn't he? Pretending to be an actor. And he gets caught up in this murder plot. Val Kilmer's really good in it. Downey Jr. ends up as like like fish out of water story. Yeah, I massively, <laughs> I massively enjoyed it. It's one of those films that, because I don't think loads of people have seen, I end up recommending to people all the time. Yeah. It does feel like one that went under the radar. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of people just talk about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but I, I remember know, enjoying it thoroughly. I know Shane Black did. They do Iron Man 3. Yeah, he did Iron Man 3 That's and right, yeah. The Nice Guys, which was... Oh, yeah. The Nice Guys oh, yeah, fine. Yes. Yeah, it was it was kind of a lesser version of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think. This wasn't necessarily my criteria, but I try not to put things on my list if I thought somebody had done a, a miles better film, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like, I, if, yeah. if it was a good film, but they've done five films that I think are better than it, then I, I didn't put it on my list. I think this is... That's good. interesting. I mean, because a lot of my choices are like that, but some of them I have considered, It's a, they've made a good opening film, but it's sort of who they're going to go on to be. Interesting. I mean, it's putting your own criteria on stuff, isn't it? But I think it might be his best output yeah, as a debut film. It is excellent. Nice. Number four. There's a lot of good ones. I fear I might be stealing somebody else's here, but I'm going to go uh, Neil Blomkamp, District 9. Yeah, it's uh, it was my number three. But I'll tell you yeah. what, I've got some honourable mentions, so I'm going to bang something else in there. Instead. Slot something else in. But that was another one we've watched together, uh, I think more than once. Yeah, I've seen it since as well. Like I've watched it about four times. You watched now. it without me. I'm, what a film! I'm hurt, but yeah, an insanely good film. It's a really endearing, tiny story at the backdrop of this massive event. Aliens have sort of landed and broken down over Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Also, nice to see a film not set in New York for a bit. <laughs> it was pretty pleasant, but made with like a pretty tight budget. The CGI in it looks exceptional, I think. The performance of both humans and alien are like are really great. Forgotten his it's... name, the main the main actor. Salto Copley. Yeah. Thank you. Um, He's rad. A superb, yeah, really good in it. Yeah. So number four, District you know, Nine. Do you know how um how the film was like made, like the story behind it? I don't. He was, I think they were working on the Halo film that was in production for pre-production for like a decade. Like Peter Jackson was involved with it. And after it all fell through, basically Peter Jackson apparently approached Neil Bonkamp and said, I'll finance a project, whatever you want to do. He was so enamored with him. <laughs> it's kind of like whatever film you want to make. And he had a he had a short film basically that was roughly District Nine. And so he made a big budget version of it. Oh, thank God Halo didn't get made. Mm. I imagine much better than Halo would have been. <laughs> Halo might have had all of the like action and stuff, but it's this is also like quite a sweet story about a man trying to get back to the woman he loves, yeah. a father trying to protect his son. That's good, isn't it? Beautiful stuff. Not watched it for at least a year. It's going. <laughs> yeah, that it, that that is kind of an annual an annual bash. Cool. Okay, number four for me is this is Spinal Tap. Yeah. yeah. Rob Reiner. Well, I can't do this every time because I've no films left. <laughs> <laughs> that was I, also on my list, but I thought that might be elsewhere. I could have switched. I was trying to pick between Shaun of the Dead as well and that for similar reasons, really. But I think Spinal Tap's obviously super rewatchable, super funny. And also, I think it created 
Ricky Gervais, really. Um, that whole mockumentary sort of genre. Yeah. I, I don't know of anything. There, there probably was something that did it before it, but I don't know it. Don't know if Rob Reiner was attached, but have you seen the sort of sequels, semi-sequels that they made, A Mighty Wind and Best in Show? Yeah. And I don't like them as much. No, no I don't they're think still it, good. That's it. I don't think either of them are like touch spinal tap as the no. I think the other two films are quite fun. And when Spinal Tap went on tour, like as, as if they were a real band, and their was the support act. Their, their support wind. act was a mighty wind. Oh, and that people is like incredible. Boo, <laughs> people would boo them off stage because they didn't. So few people had gone to see a mighty wind. They didn't understand the joke that, that I, it was the same band. <laughs> I've got, I've got a <laughs> One band story. got booed off, got changed, and came back onto Cheers. I've got a little story about that that I was going to throw out when I listed this film in my list. But apparently Noel Gallagher said in an interview once that him and Liam went to go and see see them. And when the Mighty Wind were playing, Liam was going on about how shit they were and wanted to go and come back when Spinal Tap were on. And uh, apparently burst into tears when Noel said that it was the same people. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Delightful. I don't know how true that is, but enjoyed it as a story. Yeah, it's a good story nonetheless. <laughs> and a good story doesn't need to be true. So, like, we've um, eaten up a few of your choices, Andy. Yeah, this is a problem with going last, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So this wasn't originally in my list, but it is now slotted in at number four, which is Brick by Rian Johnson. Yeah, excellent choice. Yeah. Um, actually, I can't say that this is my favourite film of his, because I watched uh, Knives Out the other, the other week. I thought that was out as well. Superb, really enjoyed it. But it's a good story, and it's a unique take on the story as well. Setting yeah. it in this high school, basically, but but it being like a sort of neo noir. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Kind of murder plot. Yeah, really good film. It almost made my list anyway. To be honest, I don't mind at all just slotting it in. Yeah, well, I, I agree. It's it's great. You've had your revenge because I'm going to have to slot that out of my list. Excellent. Oh Oh, Basically, we just swapped orders. We got the same list then. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> and also okay, so having had Brick snatched from me, uh, my number three is one, actually, Mark, you've already mentioned it. It's Edgar Wright, Shaun of the Dead. I have liked almost everything that Edgar Wright has put out. Yep. I think Shaun of the Dead is one of the highlights. Like I haven't picked it because of it, the other stuff he's done. Like I think Shaun of the Dead is amongst his best films. Agreed. It's just, it's really funny. It really hits those tropes of classic zombie films and takes the piss out of them in such a loving way. Clearly adore those type of films in the way that they know exactly how to poke fun at it in a, just a, a really fun way. Yeah, it's so on the nose, but like you say, it's all done with love, isn't it? Yeah. Clearly loves the genre, so yeah, great choice. I didn't even think of Edgar Wright, and he's one of my favourite directors. To get off the marks with Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, it's a hell of a way to start. And then, mm. like, cemented his style. Yeah, and he kind of started with two perfect films, really. Yeah. And um, yeah. I've only that... watched The World's End twice, but the first time I was quite disappointed, but on the second time I was like, I actually really quite like this. Okay. And I suspect it might it might jump again, We'll we'll see. I think Interesting. It, I think it's really good. I think it just suffers by comparison. It's the weakest of the yeah. three. And, yeah, uh, but the other two are so perfect. Yeah, but... that's it. I don't think it's a bad film at all. I laughed a lot at it, but it just compared to the other two, I also left slightly disappointed. Yeah, fair play. Then goes on to Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. 
beautiful. Yeah. Solid filmography, to be fair. Yeah. Okay, shall I do my number three? Yeah, go for your number three, buddy. It's probably the most sort of debatable one out of all of my five, but I went for Monsters by Gareth Edwards. Okay, I don't think I've seen this. No, me neither. Okay. So he went on to do Godzilla, which wasn't amazing, and also Rogue One. Which which, Godzilla, uh, the, the most recent one? No, the uh, the 2014, I want to say, like the first kind of big Hollywood remake, not the one with... Uh, Is Matthew it the Jamiroquai one? No. <laughs> ah, disappointing. Yeah, it's the one with Brian Cranston in. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Anyway, so I would have thought you would have seen this. You should definitely watch it. It's basically a road trip movie. I don't know. It's not exactly before sunrise or something like that, but it is just right. this guy is given this task to escort this girl out of this dangerous zone, basically. And it's kind of a travelogue through these different countries. And there's amazing scenery and all the character stuff is amazing. And it's like this really great relationship story. And I think the lead two actors were a couple in real life. So they got really great chemistry and stuff. You know, the guy in particular is quite a flawed character. So it's super interesting. But then the backdrop of that is that there's these giant alien monsters who have landed and now inhabit earth and so all the time that's kind of in the background it's done in a really clever way i think and it's the reason it's so high for a debut is just because i think it was super low budget he basically did the effects on his laptop (laughs) and half of it was filmed handheld camera with a minimal crew and it's just kind of crazy. I don't think he's ever kind of lived up to it. But I would, yeah. I would, I'd strongly recommend giving it a watch. It, it sounds, it sounds rad. I mean, when you when you were describing the sort of main plot, I was thinking, yeah, it sounds pretty good. And then aliens as well. Yeah, and I'm on, I'm on board. All my boxes are being ticked here. Exactly. It's not like a, I think the, the the title is misleading though because it's not not really about them. No, not at all. And there's no real like action to speak of or anything like that. It's it's very much just this relationship blossoming with that as the backdrop. I do enjoy those sort of stories though. You know that at the end of the world rather than it being about the end of the world is about who's left. Like, yeah. Exactly. Be kind of like if you took five easy pieces and just had the Loch Ness monster in the uh, <laughs> in the lake for, for no around. reason. <laughs> Eats his dad at the <laughs> while he's admitting his failings to him. Okay, Andy, number three. Cool. Well, everything's getting um, bumped off my list, bumped up the list. So I'm gonna wasn't originally in my list, but that's fine. Um, I'm gonna go for Robert Rodriguez's. First film, El Mariachi. I've not seen it. I definitely recommend watching it. The reason it didn't make my list, I, there's better films in the world. The, the context of the film is kind of everything, I think. And he made, oh, what's it called? It's called Desperado. Yeah, Desperado. Which Isn't is, that kind of a loose remake? Yeah, basically. I was going to say big, well, yeah, it is big budget. At least big mm-hmm. budget comparatively. I heard a funny thing. They said I didn't bother storyboarding out the film because there was no other, there was nobody to show it to. (laughs) He did everything. Yeah, he said he made the film basically for the Mexican market, Mexican like straight to straight to video market, and was hoping to make a bit of money. He realised that he was planning on going back and getting redoing takes after he'd gone home and edited it. 
but he realised he was just wasting money on film. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't bother. Just put uh, it out. And it is classic. I, I like Robert Rodriguez quite a lot. None of his films are amazing, but they're all super enjoyable. I think it set his style. And it set his style because it was forced to. Apparently, like he recorded all the audio and the film separately, like him recording it, recording both of them. And that kind of forced his hand in terms of how he edited it. So he said, like, if he got to a bit where he just couldn't link up the audio and the visual, then he would cut away to a, a visual of a dog whilst the... <laughs> <laughs> whilst the like words are still going on so like it sort of forced his hand but it became his signature of that like super choppy became uh, like, his style film. yeah and it does have everything that you want out of a film like it's a mariachi musician who's like mistaken for like a murderer and so he's like hiding from uh, a gang that's tracking him down it, it's super violent and uh <laughs> To be honest, the more I talk about it, the more I think it should have made my list in the first place. It's, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's pretty fun. Much like uh, Rodriguez, your hand has been forced. Yeah, don't regret that decision. It's fine. It can stay in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, difficult. The number two. My number two, I think, is Martin McDonough's In Bruges. Great choice. Again. I last watched that In Bruges. <laughs> what else is there to do there? I felt like I should. <laughs> did you climb the tower and then jump off it? I did climb the tower, yeah. Didn't jump did you off jump it. off? I didn't, yeah. no. But um, I think a really great film full of great performances. Wacky gangster film, if such a thing can exist. But it's one of those that has its kind of own internal logic that sort of makes sense in and of itself, even though all the characters are complete idiots and there's no sense to like how they got to where they are. But Within its own little world, it's all it all sort of makes sense and fits together. And yeah, I just think some really great, great performances. Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell. It's the best mm-hmm. thing I've seen Colin Farrell in by a country mile. Well, no, not the best thing. The best I've seen him in a film by a country mile. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, phone booth, though. <laughs> just saying. I've not seen, but uh, great premise. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my number two. I nice think that, choice. I, I didn't think of that. No, neither did I. I think that film as well, Bruges is like a character in the like it's a filmmaking exercise as well as it is a uh, as well as it is like a story. The backdrop of Bruges mm-hmm. is set yeah. in. It's like so intrinsic to the film. Like it is actually genuinely really well directed. Everything looks great in it. Really sells yeah. the city. It's the reason I wanted to go and visit Bruges. It's one of those films that it, it's a surprise, I think, that it is a debut because it looks so good. There just don't seem to be any, like, rookie mistakes. Like the fairy tale, mm. like, scene where he, yeah, uh, it, where he shoots the uh, the non-child. <laughs> yeah. Super. And then himself. And then himself. Mark, you're number two. Uh, number two is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ooh. Bueno. Yeah, I, I mean, On Her Majesty's Secret Service might be my favourite Bond film. It's certainly top three. And yeah, I mean, for a guy to come in and do that as his debut is is crazy, really. He was the editor on, like, the earlier films. And I kind of like that, that they sort of promoted from within. Mm-hmm. 
but it is 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 a very different film to the previous ones as well. It started going a bit overboard and over the top with "You Only Live Twice" and stuff with, yeah, you know, hollowed out volcanoes and all sorts. Yeah, it takes it back to a slightly more realistic kind of setting, mm-hmm. and it's a stunning film to look at. I feel like the lighting is very different. It's all kind of very natural for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's obviously a very different Bond story. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't seen any of his other films. He didn't do many after, and I really wish he'd got to do another Bond film, to be honest. I'd, it wasn't financially successful, but as ever, that's no barometer of its quality. No. Could have easily been number one for me, but we'll we'll get to that in a in a bit. Cool. Yeah, I didn't cool, think cool, of, a, yeah. of uh, even looking into the uh, the Bond route, but yeah, solid pick. You're number two, Andy, now. Yeah, my number two, it's got considerably bumped up the list, but uh, <laughs> but that's fine. Is uh, Alex Garland's first film, um, which I want to say Ex Machina, but I think is Ex Machina, which slightly annoys me. Yeah, I think the correct pronunciation is Ex Machina, but... But I think Ex it's Ma- called Ex Machina. Ex Machina, yeah, but excellent choice. Alex Garland's written three books which I read. So he's written three books before he started as a screenwriter and then director. Right. Um, he wrote The Beach, most famously. Yeah. I don't know if he wrote the screenplay for The Beach, though. I'm not sure he did. But anyway, as an author, I think he was superb. It's a bit of a shame that he started making films because he's not written anything <laughs> since. But yeah. Uh, so then he moved on to be like a screenwriter. I think he wrote 28 Days Later. Uh, mm-hmm. Like he's worked with Danny Boyle a few times. So I was kind of excited about this film before I saw it anyway. Um, but I think it's a really good sci-fi plot. I think he said it was like a sci-fi that's set 10 minutes in the future. Like yeah. It's a story that's so, if you heard that Google were doing it now, you'd just be like, that's moderately surprising. Yeah, the sort of sci-fi <laughs> that is not out of our, our reach. No. Yeah, I know. I think it's a really great film. Like, it's really creepy and claustrophobic. Mm. And I think, again, like having that juxtaposition of a like world-changing technology, but the entire film is set in this sort of mansion in the middle of nowhere, which is really hard to get to. Like, I mean, what is there? There's like there's two, two human characters and one AI character. Pretty much. I think that's, like, that's there's a pilot it. who brings him in on a helicopter at the beginning. Yeah. He's a cool guy. Oscar Isaacs <laughs> is so good in that as well. Yeah. Um, as their genius recluse multi-billionaire company owner. Yeah. And the familial connection. Yeah, Domino Gleason's the uh Yeah, Brendan Gleason's son. Yeah, is the like IT expert. Works for Oscar Isaacs. He yeah. invites him to basically test his test his AI, but it's mm. I need to rewatch that actually. It's such a good film. But there are bits when they're just doing like one-on-one interviews when he's trying to it's sort of supposed to be the um artificial intelligence test, isn't it? To see whether somebody can speak to the artificial intelligence and the Turing test. The Turing test, thank you. Not recognize that it is artificial intelligence. It yeah. could pass as a human. And they're like really intimate and again, like kind of creepy at times and quietly terrifying yeah it's got that kind of black mirror style like slightly Slight. unsettling not yeah, like yeah. quite you could see it happening in real sort of day times that kind of makes it worse because it feels feels sort of realistic and really good film i'll watch anything that alex garland made 
yeah, I think he's probably one of those I'd I'd just go in for. Number one, Will. Okay, so you're ready for the big, big reveal of my number one. I'm excited. I've had a lot of good films named so far. But not my number one is going to be Robin Hardy and The Wicker Man, mainly just because I was astonished to find it on the list. The fact that that film is somebody's debut film and it's just sort of a perfect film. I did not it, know that was, a, that was a debut film. That's it. It sort of just blew my mind to find it on the list of... Uh, directorial debuts and for that it went it went to my number one it's a, it's a great pick again i didn't cross my minds um super pick edward woodward is incredible and mm. christopher lee ah yeah superb film it's a shame that the remake isn't a uh isn't a debut film because mark could have had that hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know what the first time i watched the wicked man i thought this needs more bees <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking the whole way through this needs more of uh, or Cage. Absolutely. Great choice. So I pass the baton to you, Mark. What is your number one? Uh, my number one was another one I only watched, I think it was Saturday or Sunday evening. And I'd already watched Citizen Kane. And that was the one that I thought I should watch because it's a debut film. I was just going to select something from my shelf for the evening. And it's been sat there for months. And it just sort of crossed my mind at the last minute. I think that's his debut. And so I just thought I'd give it a go. And yeah, it's probably difficult to say at this point. I'd have to watch it again, but it's probably in my top 10 films of all time. It's definitely going to be the same as mine. It's definitely not. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'd, I'd be very, very surprised. It's, it's the one and only film that Marlon Brando directed. Oh, Christ. Only his debut, but his final film as well. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't fuck around. It's like you could want an if, we ever, yeah. if we ever do a top five final films, you can throw that throw this yeah. back in. <laughs> <laughs> Double pick. Absolutely. So it's called One Eyed Jacks, right? Uh, and I think it's from 1961, and it's pretty much a western, but it's not really a traditional western. It has elements of kind of older westerns, but. I just, I don't know, it, it blew me away. I, I don't really want to say too much about it, um, but I'd never even really heard of it. No, um, I've ne never heard of it before. I didn't know Marlon Brando had directed anything. It's one of those, it's not just kind of, yeah, he's a, he's a famous actor and a bit mental by all accounts, <laughs> but um, like the direction is actually amazing in it. Like the cinematography is gorgeous. Like the locations for a Western, it's primarily set on a beach with these massive waves constantly coming in, which is very different. And in the first 20 minutes or so, I wasn't convinced by his character because he's so Marlon Brando-esque, I suppose. Yeah. It just mm -hmm. feels out of place. But by the end of it, it's just, I don't know, he's, he's, he's phenomenal. I think it's probably my favourite Brando film as well. I mean, as I said, I'm saying top 10 films of all time. I mean, that's a pretty major statement and, you know, it could be one of those, of course, where it was just like caught it at the right time, in the right mood. But, yeah, absolutely loved it. Having heard stories about Marlon Brando, it sort of makes me think that he made it just to prove a point. Like, I can imagine him arguing <laughs> with directors about, like, how, how it should be shot. And then one day, just, I'm going to make a film and it's going to be brilliant. Well, <laughs> and then made it. It was like, right, I've done it now. I've proved to well, you that you're, I'm a better director than you are. What what actually happened is uh, Stanley Kubrick was supposed to be directing it, right. and I think it got up to 
two days or something before they were due to start filming. And Kubrick just said, right, I, I can't handle you. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> and so Brando, <laughs> Brando was just like, right, that's fine. I'll direct it. And, that's um, everything I would have expected. Yeah. <laughs> that's superb. I thought it was so fucking good. I'd strongly recommend. I, I might even put it in a, a future pick. No time soon, but, you know, if we're still doing this down the line, you never know. Yeah. Yeah, please do. Nice. So, Andy. Yeah. Numero glad, uno. Glad no one named it. So has I, this been your number one from the beginning? This isn't a reshuffle. It is, yeah. I had Spinal Tap at number two. Okay. Um, and I had uh, District 9 at three. Mm-hmm. Um, but number one is Sam Mendes' first film, American Beauty. I watched it about three weeks ago, I think. Um, and it's the first time I've seen it for probably 10 years. Basically, I forgot how fucking good that film is. Everything about it is superb. I think Kevin Spacey's more recent history makes it slightly creepier as well. <laughs> yeah. Which definitely <laughs> yeah. definitely fits its vibe. I think it's a, if anything, it's a plus for the film. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, American Beauty in Seven, still thumbs up. K-Pax, thumbs down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The creepiness ruins K-Pax. But apparently there were loads of people that were that were approached to direct it. Sam Mendes was not top of the list. Terry Gilliam was apparently heavily linked and, and approached. That was quite interesting. Loads of things as well, like Kevin Spacey wasn't supposed to be in it. Apparently Chevy Chase was their first choice. Wow. Uh, I always, yeah. I always love those, like, casting things yeah like i think was it uh, tom Selleck was a big choice for indiana jones yeah <laughs> that would have been weird up until 1917 which is um real good i don't think sam mendes has done anything better everything in between those two films i'd probably still go american beauty first mm-hmm. probably his best film i think you're probably right although yeah. i didn't yeah. really I, I was surprised how much i liked 1917 I um, thought it was great. Yeah, I think those two films are his standout two films. He made a couple of movies in between there, which... Um, Spectre was rubbish. Jarhead was okay. Skyfall's good. Well... Yeah, it's a two-on-one, this. Well, uh, well, <laughs> on the Skyfall dis- We've disagreed on that before. But yeah, I think it's, like, everything about it is superb. Like, the music's superb in it as well. Um, it's really well shot. The story just flows so well. It's a great film. It's a great film, really well made. So yeah, when I was like flicking through director debuts, it was uh, an easy pick at number one for me. Good pick. Yeah, Excellent a, pick. It is a good pick. I think it's interesting that our, all of our number ones were the number ones we'd initially picked and they were all different. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't appear in anyone else's list. Right. Let me just smash you through my, uh, my master list. Do it. So we had George Lucas... THX1138. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that enjoyable a film, but a fairly interesting debut. <laughs> I was really annoyed about uh, George Lucas because I was convinced that his first film was American Graffiti. American Graffiti. So I popped that on the list and then yeah. looked it up later. It was like, Christ, I've got to take it off. It's not his debut. Yeah. Uh, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I've got Burt Reynolds, Gator, mainly just for my own personal enjoyment gate is pretty fun agreed i was quite surprised to see that robert zemeckis's first film was i want to hold your hand that that was his that was his debut christ yeah there was one will maybe it's on your list but there was one i actually thought 
from memory, and I could be making it up, that you were quite a big fan of, mm-hmm. which was uh, 12 Angry Men. Oh, oh you know what? I don't have that on the list, but... That's a great film. Is it a debut? Is it a, a debut, debut for... So Sydney Lumet or Lumet? I, I feel like I looked it up and I may be lying. I'll go through the list and uh, you can look it up. <laughs> uh, the Coen Brothers, Blood Simple. Again, not really one of their best films, but not a bad debut. Leonard Nimoy, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yeah, fair. Indeed, yeah. I was pleased to see that both Crocodile Dundee and Crocodile Dundee 2 were both directorial debuts. People always cutting their teeth under Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, uh, Bruce Robinson with Nail and I. Oh, great choice. Great uh, film. Kevin Costner dances with wolves. Where was that, Mark? Uh, I was considered. Couldn't have two westerns. Yeah. There's uh, the Shawshank Redemption, Frank Darabont, which at least IMDb considers to one, be yeah. the best film of all time. There was a couple which I thought you two may have Moon by Duncan Jones. Absolutely, that's on the master list. Donnie Darko? Yeah, that's on here. debut either. Um, I've not seen it since I was 17. (laughs) I've not seen it for a while either, but I did like it a lot back in the day. Yeah, 12 Angry Men was a debut, by the way, Ah. on some TV stuff. But yeah, I I kind of feel, if I wasn't being poncy because I just watched it, it, it would have been on my top five instead of Citizen Kane, I think. 12 Angry Men's brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I adore that film. And you're right. Like, had I have known that, oh, my list is invalidated. <laughs> me too. I would have considered it. As, uh, I can't believe I put, like, fucking brick on there instead of... Kiss, <laughs> <laughs> Kiss, Bang, Bang, both good films, but uh, they're not on 12 Angry Men <laughs> level. <laughs> Just the last couple, I think, are slightly interesting. Uh, Goro Miyazaki for Tales from Earthsea. Yeah, uh, I like that film taking over from his dad and i think it gets a bit derided but i enjoy it yeah same and uh both affleck brothers i think their debuts were good so ben affleck had gone baby gone and casey affleck was i'm still here they're both on my list yeah i could have slotted either one of those in i really like both of them although i have more time for the afflecks than almost anyone else in the world because everyone seems to hate them apparently so but yeah I'm, i'm fine with them Got a ton of time for both of them. That's it. All the lists. You've named everything on my mentions list, apart from I named American Graffiti as being one that pissed me off. I was also convinced that Seven was David Fincher's first film, and so that went straight on the list until I realised it did. Until I realised it did fucking Alien 3. Yeah. Annoying. Nobody considered Tommy Wiseau, The Room. (laughs) Peak, Peak debut. What about uh, Kevin Smith, Clerks, Clerks? I did, I did clerks. have, uh, I did have Clerks as well. Actually, probably my favourite Kevin Smith film. Yeah, I think, I think his early Clutch, yeah, are all quite good for my money. Mm. But when Ben Affleck was uh, was in him, that was good. Chasing, <laughs> chasing Amy, was it? I didn't realise you had this Affleck. Affection. Yeah, I didn't realise you had this <laughs> such a hot for Affleck. <laughs> I really like both of them. They're good. Affleck sandwich. You got any uh, honourable mentions, Mark, that have not been covered? Yeah, no, I, I don't have anything else. It's weird how so many directors that you think are some of the classic ones, just their first movies are just kind of non-entities, really. That That's yeah. what I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't go through a kind of... I did go through a list after a bit, but I started off by just 
flicking on my favorite directors, mm-hmm. mainly because I a lot of them I thought I knew what their first film was and then turned out to be wrong. Yeah, exactly. There was one other, I suppose, Bottle Rocket, the Wes mm-hmm. Anderson one. One of Wes Anderson's like weaker films, I think. It's a good. Yeah, film. I I agree. I I remembered it being great, and we tried to watch it about two months ago, and to be honest, turned it off after half an hour. It's like this. It's not actually as funny as I remember, and it doesn't have any of his style. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? Like a lot of these are kind of directors like cementing their style instantly, and Bottle Rocket is one that doesn't like it. It just quirky. misses the mark ever so slightly. Well, I think it's quirky, but it doesn't feel super Wes Anderson-y. It's, it's like somebody doing a Wes Anderson parody. Right. So that's the end of our picks for this week. It's a pretty strong showing, Mark. Uh, I think both your film and album have, have probably top our scores list so far indeed yeah i mean to be fair i you could argue i somewhat cheated having familiarity with both of them but it wasn't we never made that a rule yeah true you're playing fair uh but importantly andy it's going to be your choice for next week so what have you got lined up for us uh so next week going current film um we're gonna have a look at the trial of the chicago seven from last year the album we're going to look at is Land Animals by Bent Knee. And okay. then we'll be doing top five film soundtracks. Top five film soundtracks. Solid. Okay. Well, that's all from us at Screen and Needle. Join us next week where we'll have a new film, new album, and a new top five list.